An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, our guest is the remarkable Larry Siegel. The simplest way to describe Larry is that he's a respected thought leader at the intersection of finance and economics. He also churns out careful research at an amazing pace, even while staying abreast of the research being done by others. I think of Larry sort of as a public intellectual, sort of like a Neil deGrasse Tyson, just focused on finance and economics, not space and science. Larry is the research director of the Research Foundation of the CFA Institute. Among his previous positions are long stretches as director of research at the Ford Foundation and as a consultant at Ibbotson. Larry is the author of Fewer, Richer, Greener, which at one point was the number one economics book on Amazon. Fewer, Richer, Greener is basically optimistic about the future, a welcome rebuttal to economics reputation as the dismal silent science and much of the pessimism and apocalyptic thinking, which passes for gravitas today. Welcome, Larry. Well, thank you. Well, how are you? I am good. Let's find out how you are. So what's your origin story? I mean, I know you went to the University of Chicago, both as an undergraduate and for your MBA. And Chicago, of course, is famous for its economists. But unlike many, you always seem to have a humanist view to your research. How did you become the person you are today, both personally and professionally? I've always been interested in, in almost everything. Uh, pursued a general liberal arts education. I went to a high school, a private high school that provided that. And then the University of Chicago did, did more and required you to pretty much get a, an education in each of the, what they regarded as the four major areas of knowledge, physical science, biological science, social science, and, and humanities. So I graduated really without much direction at that time. Business school was not a popular choice. Everybody wanted to get a PhD or become a doctor, but business was considered to be kind of a low class, grubby occupation. I'm 68 years old, but I had a friend, Gary Hoover, who later became the founder of Bookstop, the, the firm that became Barnes and Noble Superstores. And, and he was pursuing business education and that uh, went into business. And I thought, well, treat, there's a lot of intellectual content to this that I didn't know about, and you can also make money. So I, I gave the MBA program a try and I was drawn to finance, but because it, it, it's kind of the intellectual side of, of business. So it was economics, but I had a major in something and I had a very fine finance teacher, still a friend and still a work colleague, Roger Ibbotson who got me hooked on, on financial management. So tell us about Fewer Richard Greener. I mean, the central thesis 
is that humanity has progressed tremendously, whether the metric is the standard of living, lifespan, health, safety, whatever, and that the trends in place, slowing population growth and increase in democracy and capitalism and the technology revolution mean we will be fewer, richer, and greener. And when I, when I explain like that, it sounds a little bit like Moliere's glibly optimistic Dr. Pangloss, we're living the best of all possible worlds. And I know it's not. You acknowledge challenges. and It's a well-researched book. So you tell us, why are we heading towards being fewer, richer, and greener? Well, I, I think as all of us were growing up, we heard that there were too many people and that it was going to produce, well, Paul Ehrlich said starvation by the year 1975 or something like that. He said that there would no longer be in England, that craze that, that we learned before that being that there will always be in England and that basically the world is going to come to an end to populate ourselves off the planet. Like Thomas Malthus's prediction two centuries earlier, this wasn't completely ridiculous. At the population growth rate that we were experiencing in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, it worldwide, but more, more in Asia uh, than in Europe or the Americas, we would have had these problems. What's happened to resolve it is that the world got richer at a remarkable rate with, you know, real growth in excess of 2% per capita per year. And as you pass a certain benchmark, uh, well above subsistence living and getting close to what you might call comfort or the middle class, uh, people don't feel the need to have as many children to, to protect themselves. Uh, you, you don't need seven sons to work on the farm. You, you don't need seven daughters so that two or three live, live long enough to take care of you in your old age. And, and in fact, children become something of a, a burden rather than an asset because you have to pay for their education. You have to build a larger house and so forth. So that the without any compulsion, China used compulsion, but the rest of the world did not, uh, the birth rates came down radically and, and in most countries now are just either barely above replacement rate or they're in fact below it. So fewer is happening. In sub-Saharan Africa, it's taking longer, but it's also happening. But uh, because of something called population momentum, which means that there are a lot of young people around who haven't already had their kids, but the African population is still growing pretty fast. And in 2100, there'll be uh, something like three and a half billion Africans, which is about the same not quite as large a population as Asia, but it's in the same category, whereas today it's not. This means that the resource constraints are tremendously eased. We can grow enough food for everybody. In fact, the biggest food-related problem now is not starvation or hunger, but obesity, including in developing countries. That's not as richer, but you know, the this, this growth rate of 1.8% per capita real ha has continued for about 250 years. And there's no reason to think it's going to slow down much. It, it's going to slow down because it's harder to grow when you're rich than when you're poor, because when you're poor, 
you'll do almost anything to get ahead. When you're patient, take it easy and say, this is good enough. And in, in a sense, it is good enough. But there are a lot of people in places like Indonesia and Nigeria and uh, western part of China, which is not rich, most of India, which is, which is nowhere near rich, that uh, they're going to, to converge. What about the greener part of the prediction? Having a green environment, basically one that's free of pollution, uh, that, that's safe uh, in the sense that you don't have all kinds of chemical poisons circulating and also to limit climate change to a reasonable amount is very expensive. And the, the poorest people would rather eat or make sure that they can eat than invest in their long-term future of the earth. And they have to. As you reach a certain standard of living, this investment in the future becomes more reasonable and more politically acceptable. And, you know, we see China doing it now. They're moving really fast, but from a low level. And India is moving even from a lower level. But, but the rich countries of the world look kind of like a national park. Most people probably visited Switzerland or possibly Norway, Sweden, Austria, or New Zealand. And uh, it's about as green as an environment as you could possibly imagine. And the population is growing minimally or, or not at all. And nature is, is thriving. They're being reforested. I'd like to see this happen everywhere but it'll take a long time. That's nature. The, the problem with climate, of course, is that it's not confined to national borders, right? And it does affect, for instance, food production, which would go back to your people would rather eat, but you can't eat if your historic agricultural lands are flooded or arid. So is there's something else that's going on that's going to make us greener besides being fewer and a little richer? It's technology, although I would push back a little on the agriculture. So far, global warming has increased food yields a little. It, it won't forever. There comes a point where you're so far away, you know, we've already optimized our agricultural um, infrastructure around places that have a good climate now. So climate changes in any direction, it's bad because you've already put your crops where they grow best. But we can adapt pretty quickly to changing climate, not to radical changes in the climate, but to slow, predictable changes. I believe that the climate is changing due to both human and non-human activity, but that we are taking steps to limit the release of CO2 into the atmosphere. An energy transition takes a long time. And Vaslav Smil, who is probably the world's foremost expert on energy, broadly construed, uh, says that it takes between 40 and 60 years to go from wood to coal or coal to oil or oil to natural gas. The next transition will be to a mix of nuclear and renewables, and it's going to take about that long. So we're going to have to adjust to whatever climate change takes place as we make that adjustment. It's always dangerous to say it's different this time, but let me ask you the question. 
is it? I mean, in, in finance, as you know, a thing called a barrier option, which says that once you cross usually some price point, your security will behave differently. Climate scientists suggest that there is a planetary limit, which will act like a barrier option, and that we don't have 40 or 60 years. So is that different than previous migration uh, reactions to climate or reactions to genocides or reaction to anything in that the human race could still survive? Do we wind up on the other side of a barrier? And if so, if we survive, what does it look like? There are two possible barriers. One is that there is a runaway reaction, like a chain reaction in nuclear physics that makes the earth get warmer at accelerating rates until it's uninhabitable. And I, although I've heard that argument, I, I have mostly heard the other side, which is that climate change is actually self-limiting and, and that we are between two ice ages. And the only question is how hot it's going to get before the next one and whether we can survive that comfortably or with great hardship. I don't know that that barrier exists, the, the accelerating uh, climate change. There's another barrier, which is that that is based on the carrying capacity of the planet. But there are only so many watts of sunlight hitting the planet, and there are only so many we can capture through uh, agriculture and turn into food and so forth. That, to me, is more plausible, but, but we're nowhere near it. Um, the only physical limit that comes from astrophysics is 173,000 terawatts. That, that a terawatt is a trillion watts of sunlight striking the earth at any one time. That's 10,000 times what we're using. Now, what we can't capture at all, first of all, there are the basic inefficiencies in, in using plants as the way to convert sunlight into energy that people can use as food, that they're just not very good at it, but no serious projection has energy use ever reaching more than five times what we're now using. So the hypothetical upper limit is 10,000 times the hypothetical upper limit of demand. Now there is none, but, but the realistic one is five times what we're now using. That means that everybody who lives on the earth at peak population of 10 or 11 billion will live at a middle-class standard of living. Uh, the two numbers just don't come close to crossing. So the, I regard the problem as technological, but we have to figure out ways to uh, both not only mitigate climate change, but also produce a whole hell of a lot more energy than we're now producing without causing a lot of, of, of destruction of the habitat. That we use mining, to get all the stuff for solar panels and wind turbines and nuclear reactors and whatever the other technologies are. The mining is, is carbon energy intensive. There's no easy solution. I mean, we're, we're not going to be able to make this energy transition happen in 10 or 20 or 30 years, but we're going to make a big dent in it in 30 years. Our listeners include many people in finance and investing, and you're at the CFA Institute. What's the role of capital markets 
in all of this? Well, everything I described is going to take an immense amount of capital, a quadrillion dollars or something like that to give you a round number. The economy has to produce all that. It has to produce goods and services worth a quadrillion dollars over the next 15 years in order to achieve the transition. And where the transition isn't just the, what do you call it, the generation of energy, but all the adaptation stuff that I, that I just mentioned. The way that capital markets will produce that is by providing the capital needed for economic growth at a very healthy rate. I've suggested 1.8 or 2% a year per capita is the rate that we've been able to achieve in the past. It can't get much above that for very long, but you can get way below that. And that's what we don't want to have happen. So capital markets need to function efficiently. The constraining variable that isn't the amount of capital available, but how the capital is going to be used. If, if we sent a trillion dollars to quote unquote Africa to, to, tomorrow, uh, we would be taxing poor people in rich countries to give to rich people in poor countries. And the, the stock of Daimler-Benz would go way up. This is not healthy. We need to think of better ways. There's some people actually who are African, Gambisa Moyo, uh, Magata Wade, just throw a couple of names out there, uh, who are thinking about how to uh, engage in, in cross-border philanthropy in effective ways. Uh, so far, it's been pretty ineffective. We need to improve that. Your book came out almost two years ago as we record this podcast in late 2022, which means you probably finished writing it about three years ago. So you have the benefit of hindsight and three more years of evidence. Is there anything you wish you'd written differently or any predictions you'd want to modify? Well, first of all, I, I didn't know much about pandemics. There hadn't been one that was serious in, in terms of big enough to affect the functioning of the economy since 1918. And I wrote about 1918, but I didn't think it would happen again. And so our biggest enemy, it turns out not to be our political enemies here on earth. I don't think that it's climate change. It's bugs and it's not bacteria. Bacteria, we're winning the war against bacteria. Occasionally they win a battle, but we get the war because we are able to adapt our antibiotic supply about as quickly as they're able to evolve to, to hurt us or, or more so. With viruses, that is not the case. But we now have a general purpose technology called messenger RNA for immunizing people against viruses, but we don't know whether it's effective. It, at the beginning, it looked like it was fantastic. You just take that shot and you're not going to get COVID. Well, now you do get COVID, but it's much milder. And it becomes more like a, uh, a nuisance than, than an existential threat. But the next virus will have learned. <laughs> they learn. It's a hive mind. They don't individually learn anything, but, but because of natural selection, that the ones that can beat our defenses become stronger and take over. I didn't write about that. I would. So we're writing the book now, and I may write another book. I mean, I'll certainly write another book. I don't know what it'll be about. And the other thing is that the political scene has uh, 
become poisonous. In the developed world, we rely on what Tyler Cowen, great thinker, great blogger, professor calls state capacity. Yet you don't want the government to be so powerful as to run every aspect of your life to be a nightmare, as the Chinese are finding out. But you do want them to be able to step in massively with lots of resources at an emergency or ahead of the emergency so that to prevent it. And when our, uh, our own uh, political scene is, is so fragmented, we don't quite have a, a functioning government. If we were attacked, people always say, if we were attacked by aliens, well, the countries on the earth would come together to, to fight them. That's probably true. But, but if we were attacked by a foreign power, I also think we would come together. But for smaller battles, I don't think we're doing it. We're, we're, we're all, we're fighting each other. And in the developing world, bad government seems to be catching like a communicable disease. So that I, I would probably write a less sanguine view of moving toward liberal democracy globally, but we're not. We're moving a little bit away from it. So having asked you to look at the future, I'm going to reverse and ask you to look at the past for a second. Well, I'm better at that because we have more information. You've also have lived experience. You have a long, distinguished career at CFA, at Ford, at Ibbotson. Those are all premier institutions in our world of investing. So let me ask you to look at investing. How has investing changed over the course of your career, both in practice and in theory? Over the course of my life, which began in 1954, I would say that it changed from being purely qualitative to mostly quantitative. In the 1930s, 40s, 50s, the portfolio management consisted of picking a few stocks that you regarded as bargains and hoped they went up. There wasn't much sense of diversification. Harry Markowitz came out with his portfolio selection paper, which is the basis of all modern investing in 1952, but nobody could use it because it relied on computing power that wouldn't exist for another 10 years. And then when computing power did exist, Bill Sharp found ways to harness it that produced things like performance measurements and index funds. Jack Bogolin actually thought about index funds in 1951 in his senior thesis at Princeton, but he didn't actually start an index fund until over 20 years later. So the, the big changes in investing came before my career began, it, which was in 1977 to 79. I graduated in 77 with an MBA. I began working in, in finance as opposed to something else in 79. At that point, all of the great innovations in finance had already taken place. The seven great ideas of finance, I'm not going to be able to name all seven from memory, are market efficiency, portfolio efficiency or optimization, the dividend discount model, the, or discounted cash flow principle, the idea of options and option pricing. And then there are a couple others, but those are the big ones. They were in the mental toolkits of the people in finance who would then change it in practice over the subsequent 40 years. 
So now you, you have a massive move of intellectual capital into finance, probably too much. We don't have enough doctors. People are waiting in the hospital for 30 hours to see an emergency brain physician. But on Wall Street, you've got people with equivalent education swarming around computer terminals, trying to arbitrage away micro differences in prices globally. So I think the finance is kind of overbuilt and it's going to be harder to get a job it, it, as a young person going into finance right now. High-speed trading is an innovation that I think does absolutely nothing for anyone except the high-speed trader. It does make the market more efficient by one part in a million. I don't care. What really makes the market efficient is people analyzing the prices of securities and not buying the ones that are overpriced or shorting them if they work in a hedge fund and, and buying them uh, if they're underpriced. And, and that, that work is, is harsh. It, it requires more than just quantitative analysis. It requires knowing something about the future of the companies and the industries and the economy. And those, those skills, I think, are still scarce. They're not so scarce as to be that you can't find any, but, but there's not enough fundamental analysis and the people who are doing it tend to be the kind of cats and dogs of the investment world and the real prestige and big bucks could go elsewhere. And so I think that that's a change that we could benefit from. So let's finish with some short questions and answers. How do you relax? I play three musical instruments. I play the violin, piano, and the guitar. Right now, I've kind of focused on violin because I, I studied it from when I was a young kid until I was 14 or 15, and then gave it up in favor of folk music and rock and roll. And uh, when I was 60, I met a guy who is the lead violinist in a well, in a klezmer band and also in a gypsy jazz band. He's in every band. There aren't a lot of violinists, so they're very much in demand. So I studied with him for three years and uh, I'll probably do it again and got to be kind of good. You know, yeah. I'm not in a position where I can become a professional. I also read, I write, go for long walks on the beach. I live in Southern California for three months a year. So long walks on the beach are physically possible. And I'm going in about a month to stay for the rest of the winter. What are you reading right now? Right now I'm reading stuff related to my series of book reviews. Uh, I, I just finished reading Joel Kotkin's book, uh, The Coming of Neo-Feudalism. I didn't like it. I, I love Joel. He has written brilliant, beautiful stuff for decades. This is a big disappointment. But it's more fun to write a bad book review than a good book review. Uh, a good book review, you sound like a toady. Bad book review, you sound like the thundering Old Testament prophets saying, it's fools, I am surrounded by fools. Preferably reading mysteries, detective novel type mysteries. Uh, they're a lot of fun and they are relaxing, but I, I just don't have the bandwidth to be reading multiple books at the same time. Last question. If you could magically tell everyone in the world one thing, what would it be? 
chill. Let me elaborate. Uh, the comedian Louis C.K., who comes up with the best aphorisms, like you were sitting in a chair in the sky. Stop complaining about the airline industry. But he said the aphorism that relates to your question is everything is amazing and nobody is happy. Right now, I can bring the contents of the world's libraries into my lab by pressing a button. I can take a pill that will cure an infection that would have killed my great grandfather and did kill, you know, most of the people that ever lived. I can call you, video call, in fact, you, even though you're in New York, I think, and I'm in Chicago. It wasn't that long ago that we not only couldn't call each other, a long distance call was still possible back about a hundred years, but it was very expensive. If you go back a little farther, we would have been writing letters that would have traveled by train and a little before that by horse. And this conversation would have taken months. Now, when I say chill, I don't mean to stop looking for a better world. I mean, just actually to stop putting up obstacles by saying that how, how terrible everything is and identify problems that we can fix and identify problems that we are going to just have to live with and separate them so that we only work on the ones we can fix and don't be angry all the time because uh, and I spent a lot of time on social media and it, it it's kind of like being in the middle of a battlefield. The, the best part of social media, I think is puppies. And that's not saying very much for social media. So chill. Good advice. I wish the aphorism came from someone who didn't quite have Louis CK's baggage, but we will divorce the, uh, message from the messenger. Larry, thanks so much. Our guest on Outside In today has been Larry Siegel. As you've heard, a interesting, optimistic take on the future. It's nice to hear, and I will try to take the advice to chill and uh, appreciate what we've got. Thanks, Larry. Thank you, John. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John Lukonik, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor Ohingasa, John Lukumnik, executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.